Tuesday just like any other Tuesday. I was on my way home from work, driving in my truck. I had my seatbelt on, I remember I had just gotten off the phone with my wife, asking her about what we were going to have for dinner. I was sitting at a light and I just remember seeing a truck coming towards me from behind. He was moving at a really fast speed, too fast to be coming to a stop. Then I became very aware that he wasn't going to stop in time and he was going to hit my truck. I began to think as quickly as I could and remember hitting my brakes as to avoid colliding with the vehicle in front of me, but it was useless. I remember the impact. It sounded like a gunshot right in my ear and I felt the force of the collision, which threw me my vehicle about 20-30 feet forward into a truck in front of me. And then it all sort of goes black. Wow. Something like that, you know. It happens all at once, and there's nothing you can do to stop it, and in a single second, your entire life has changed. Yeah, I know. It's really upsetting to think about. One moment, you're cursing the monotony of rush hour traffic, and then in the next moment, you're a patient with a brain injury and everything that follows. Definitely. Well, the story we've just heard is certainly jarring and unique in its own right, but what's scary is how common this type of incident is. And on an even broader level, how commonly people experience brain injuries of this kind. Yeah, you know, that's very true. And uh, I think it's important and it's time for us to talk about that a little more. Starting with what we mean when we say brain injuries of this kind. Of course. But first, this seems like a good time to introduce ourselves and let our listeners know what they should expect from this podcast. Sounds great. My name is Kristen Moffitt. And I'm Jenna Dietz. And we're graduate students from the University of Florida in the Clinical and Health Psychology program, pursuing our doctorates in clinical neuropsychology. For the duration of this podcast, we'll be talking through the topic of traumatic brain injury, specifically what traumatic brain injuries are, how they present in patients, and what someone might expect to experience after the acute injury. At the beginning of this segment, we heard from a gentleman we will refer to as Mr. Smith. His story is a great example of how a traumatic brain injury typically occurs and how a patient who has suffered one might present both at the time of injury and then also as they recover. We'll hear from Mr. Smith at various times throughout the podcast because his personal account provides us with a really nice framework for uh, today's discussion. All right, let's get started then. Well, a moment ago, we alluded to Mr. Smith's motor vehicle accident resulting in a particular kind of brain injury, and I think that it's probably clear by now that we're talking about traumatic brain injuries, or TBIs. Um, Before we go any further, it's important to define exactly what we mean when we say TBI, since most injuries to the brain might be considered traumatic. Traumatic brain injury is a term that is used to specifically imply that an external force is responsible for the injury to the head or the brain. This is in contrast to something like a stroke, which occurs from within the body itself. Examples of TBIs might include gunshot wounds to the head, whereby the bullet actually penetrates the skull and enters the brain, or something like Mr. Smith's case, where a car accident results in a strong external force being applied to the body, uh, which results in the brain rocking around inside the skull and ultimately causing damage to the brain. We'll speak uh, more to the specific anatomic mechanisms of TBI in a few minutes, uh, but first let's talk about the different categorizations of TBIs. Uh, Kristen, do you want to lead us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, when diagnosing a TBI, we can use certain descriptors to more accurately describe the type and the severity of the injury. And one way we can do this is to break down TBIs into two categories that help to explain the mechanism of injury. 
These include closed head injuries and open or penetrating head injuries. As their name suggests, closed head injuries imply that the skull and other protective brain layers have not been penetrated, whereas open head injuries imply the opposite, that the skull or other protective layers that surround the brain have been penetrated and that the brain is ultimately exposed to the air. So, for instance, the gunshot wound to the head would represent an open head injury, and the motor vehicle accident would result in a closed head injury. Beyond these categorizations, we can also describe the severity of the TBI. The descriptors we typically use for severity are mild, moderate, and severe. And again, we'll discuss those in a little more detail um, a bit later. But what I think we should do now, Jenna, is provide our listeners with a few statistics related to TBI. Um, these were published in 2010 from the Centers of Disease Control. And not to bore you, but I think it's important to present these statistics early on because they give us a really good perspective of how ubiquitous traumatic brain injuries are in our community and who specifically they affect. Um, so let's just get started with them. The CDC reports that approximately 1.7 million people in the United States sustain a TBI every year. Um, further, TBI is a contributing factor to 30.5% of all injury-related deaths in the United States. When we break it down and we look at who is primarily affected by traumatic brain injuries, we see that overall, men are more likely to sustain a TBI than women. And that when we look across the lifespan, it seems like there are three specific age groups that are disproportionately susceptible to suffering a TBI. The age groups um, that are listed are 0 to 4, 15 to 19, and people over the age of 65. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is men are more at risk than women. Um, and then as far as lifespan goes, it's the early on, you know, infants to 4 years old, adolescents, and then older folks or the elderly. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the breakdown across the lifespan because I think that those statistics are really interesting. They, they make a lot of intuitive sense, especially if we consider that the leading cause of TBIs, um, well, why don't, why don't I just talk about the leading causes for a minute? Yeah, that'd be great. So the CDC reports that the four leading causes of TBIs are falls, motor vehicle accidents, being struck by or struck against events, um, and assaults. So falls account for about 35% um, or a third of reported TBI injuries and deaths. And then motor vehicle accidents or MVAs account for 17% and being struck by or struck against events account for another 17%. And then assaults accounts for about 10%. Can you explain just for a second what the CDC means when they say struck by or struck against events? Yeah, it's kind of an odd category. Um, according to the report, this category includes events that involve like colliding with a moving or a stationary object. So this would be something like a bicyclist or a pedestrian getting hit by a vehicle. Um, so let's tie this back to what we were talking about a moment ago with regard to the three periods of particularly high TBI incidents across the lifespan with the young folks, adolescents, and elderly. So it makes sense to me why we might see a spike in TBIs between ages 0 to 4 when we consider developmentally what's happening at these ages. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense because kids are becoming ambulatory, but they're not really yet adept at remaining on their feet. So when we tie that in with the fact that falls are the leading cause of TBI, it seems to come together really nicely. Exactly. So now let's think about the next group, which is ages 15 to 19. And think about age 15 in particular. That's the age where most adolescents start to drive. It's when, for the most part, they're getting a little more independence outside the home. 
Um, and much like children who are just learning how to walk, these adolescents are picking up a new skill that they're not quite proficient at yet. And when we consider that adolescents are developmentally also more likely to engage in risky behaviors, lacking those uh, frontal lobes, if you will, um, then we recall something like um, motor vehicle accidents being the leading cause of TBIs. Again, you see a really nice picture of why perhaps we see such a high incidence of TBIs in these ages. Okay, so then when I think about it, it's fairly obvious with our last age group why we might also see um, this spike in TBI incidents. Our elderly folks are at an age where their medical comorbidities are leading to increased falls, and falls may be where they're hitting their head. And maybe also their eyesight is worsening and contributing to things like car accidents. So um, as we've heard from each of these lifespans and, and thinking about the incidents that sort of coincide with them, we can see that each of these events uh, can easily lead to TBI if the person hits their head. The next day I remember was sitting in my vehicle for a while and then slowly making my way out of my truck to speak with people at the scene. Could you tell me anything more specifically about the impact? Which direction were you thrown? Where did you get hurt or hit your head? You know, it all happened so fast. I don't think I hit the dashboard, but I do remember my head being thrown posteriorly. The next day I had bruising on the back of my head and my left temporal area. I was also pretty bruised around my neck and chest where my seatbelt was holding me. All right, so we have a pretty good idea then of what Mr. Smith went through during his car accident. And, uh, and it seems like we could tell from the external signs, like things like bruising, where his head was likely to make contact with things in the car. But what does that tell us about what was actually happening to his brain? Or how much do we know about how this or any other TBI might affect the brain itself? That's a really good question. Um, obviously, it's hard to know exactly what the effects of the impact were on Mr. Smith's brain because our neuroimaging techniques, while they are very impressive and advanced, they're only so sensitive. That is to say that they can identify gross abnormalities in the brain, uh, but they aren't quite advanced enough to pick up on some of the smaller and maybe just as significant effects of TBIs, uh, which is relevant in this case example in particular. Well, that's where a good neuropsychological evaluation comes in handy. Touche. Uh, it absolutely does. And we'll discuss neuropsych a little bit more later. Uh, so even though neuroimaging can't tell us the whole story, certainly we can use methods that we do have, like a CT scan, for example, uh, to identify something like a bleed in the brain had there been one. But it's important to use what we know about the anatomy of the brain and the skull in conjunction with what we know about the physics of the specific trauma in order to kind of inform our hypotheses about what areas of the brain are the most likely to have been affected. So in this case, we heard Mr. Smith talk about um, his head being thrown back posteriorly as he hit the brakes, and he said he had some bruising on the back of his head. So let's pause for a moment and think about what that tells us about the likely areas of injury. All right, so I think I can handle this one, so I'm going to walk us through it. Um, essentially, our brains are soft tissue, and they're floating in cerebral spinal fluid inside of our skulls. Uh, the brain... So, wait, 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 so our, our brains are floating? Yeah, absolutely. And you can think about it like a sort of like a tea candle floating inside a glass jar with oil. Um, the brain isn't attached to the skull, so it's just kind of hanging out in there. And unfortunately, the inside of our skulls aren't necessarily smooth. In fact, they have areas that are very sharp and rigid. So basically, any external force that was strong enough could cause our brains to bump against these rough surfaces and cause damage. 
Um, Mr. Smith's case sounds like a classic head injury caused by a motor vehicle accident. And what we usually call these scenarios are coup, counter-coup events. Um, so let me tell you a little bit more about that specifically. That scenario involves a rapid deceleration and then a collision between Mr. Smith's truck and the vehicle in front of him. Uh, the law of, laws of physics tell us that before the crash, Mr. Smith's body and his vehicle were both moving forward at the same rate. Uh, then at the time of the crash, his truck suddenly stopped, but his head and body briefly remained in forward motion due to inertia. This most likely sent his body and head flying forward, and then quickly backward as his seatbelt pulled his body back against the seat. Uh, and then what we know from his account is it doesn't seem like Mr. Smith hit his head on the steering wheel or the dashboard during the jolt forward, but the bruises on the back of his head indicate that he probably made impact with the seat as his head flew back. So I've never been very good at physics, but um, some we would expect that the damage would localize to the back of his brain? Yeah, uh, well, sort of, but there's more to it than that. So... Uh, let me let me go through this a little bit more. In this scenario, as Mr. Smith brakes and collides with the car in front of him, his head flies forward like we discussed before. But what happens inside the skull is that our brains are slower to move forward because remember what I said before, they're floating in CSF. So CSF? The cerebral spinal fluid, oh. sorry. So the force acts more quickly on our skulls and essentially the back of our skulls smack into the back of our brains. Um, and specifically in the area in the back that we call the occipital lobes. Right, okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then a second later, when his head flies back, the opposite would happen, right? Like, hence the name coup, counter-coup? Exactly! Uh, as his head is quickly thrown backwards toward the seat, the front of his skull forcefully collides with the front of his brain. So violent. Yeah. And this area of the brain, the frontal lobes, and also the interior parts of the temporal lobes, or the front parts of the temporal lobes, are especially vulnerable to damage during injuries of this kind. Right. So the injuries to the frontal lobes, the interior temporal lobes, and the occipital lobes, we would consider those to be focal damage or localized damage um, to um, that are caused by the actual impact of the brain hitting against the skull. Uh, but you have to think that in most cases, the forward and backward movement of the head probably isn't that clean or straightforward. And what I mean is that there's usually rotational forces involved um, that act on the head as well. So it's possible that the, the brain is sort of twisting and stretching in the skull almost. So it's kind of more um, not clear-cut range of motion. Um, it's just a lot of massive force sort of uh, compressing on the brain. And this kind of movement is very common uh, in motor vehicle accidents and falls, and it can cause something that we refer to as diffuse axonal shearing, which sounds sort of complex, um, or DAI. Some people will refer to it as that. Um, so let's give that some attention for a minute, because this comes with a whole different set of potential consequences on our cognitive functions or our kind of thinking abilities um, post-accident. So as the name suggests, this kind of damage is diffuse as opposed to focal. And to explain this phenomenon, we need to talk a little bit more about some basic neuroanatomy. So hopefully that's not boring you. I love it, of course. But Kristen, would you walk us through that? I would love to. Um, so let's get down to the super basics. Uh, our brains are made up of nerve cells, and these nerve cells are called neurons. And our very simple neurons communicate with one another and work in groups to complete complex functions. 
the axon is the part of the neuron that allows for communication from one neuron to another. It's long and thin and extends from the neuronal body, and uh, you could sort of think of it as like the arm that extends um, further out from the actual nucleus and the, and the neuron. And reaches out to the other neurons in the brain. Exactly. Um, and the neurons essentially send electrical signals down these axons to excite or inhibit other neurons. So let's think about the, the car accident and the way we talked about the brain twisting and stretching inside of the brain. These kinds of things uh, that occur during a traumatic brain injury would cause damage to these axons that could ultimately end in the death of the neuron itself. And when you think about this more globally and what this means in the big picture, this is going to disrupt communication between our neurons and the ability for them to uh, effectively and efficiently carry on the, the cognitive processes after the event. Right. So um, sometimes I think about that as like, you know, almost strings within the brain, like connecting different parts of it. Mm -hmm. And then the shearing is like threading of the string. Like there's sort of like loose parts coming out from it in terms of it sort of frays it. Yeah, that's a really um, good way to think about so it. So that's kind of what we mean when we say axonal shearing. Right. Did you go to the hospital for your injury? What were you feeling in the aftermath? You know, I didn't go to the hospital. I thought I would be okay. The next day I went to work and noticed I was struggling. I had a very bad headache, nausea, and vomiting, and was just out of it. I decided to go to the hospital then, but honestly, I don't remember a lot about the days, maybe weeks, following the accident. I was functioning, but I felt like I was in a fog all the time. I couldn't concentrate, had lots of headaches, some blurriness in my left eye, and even some slurred speech. And the fogginess in my head, I'd say, went on for like four to six months. So these symptoms that Mr. Smith just described, the blurred vision and the headache and the disorientation, these are all really common symptoms of TBIs. Um, and I wish that I could really narrow it down and be specific about all of the associated symptoms of a traumatic brain injury, but um, the truth is they just vary so much. So one thing we can do, though, is talk about TBIs in terms of severity, and that'll give us somewhat of an idea about what sorts of symptoms we could expect. So earlier on, uh, we mentioned that we can classify TBIs into mild, moderate, and severe, and there are a few ways that we can do this. On the actual scene of the injury, we can grossly classify the acute injury severity as mild, moderate, or severe. And we can do this using the patient's score on the Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, have you heard of this before? Yeah, emergency medical professionals use it to assess the level of consciousness of their patients on this scene, right? Yeah, uh, and they can also use it as an objective way to monitor the patient as they recover. But basically, it's a measure that assesses the patient across three domains, um, eye, opening, verbal, and motor. And based on observations of how the patient responds in each of these domains, uh, they get a score. And when the score is totaled, it ranges from 3 to 15. So scores from 3 to 8 indicate severe brain injury, 9 to 12 indicate moderate brain injury, and 13 to 15 um, indicate mild brain injury. Uh, so the more points that you earn on the scene, the better you're doing. Exactly. The more functions. Yes. Um, but again, this is a measure of acute injury severity. 
and we also like to characterize the severity of a traumatic brain injury after we've had a little bit more time with the patient um, and to assess them more thoroughly. As it stands, there's no universally accepted criteria for diagnosing a TBI as mild, moderate, or severe, um, but we do have guidelines that we typically use to help us describe the injury in the most accurate way. Uh, basically, we start by determining to the best of our abilities whether the person lost consciousness at all, and if so, for how long. Then we use our neuroimaging methods to determine if there's evidence of brain injury. So what might we be able to see using our imaging techniques that would qualify as a brain injury? Uh, well, we might be able to identify something like a bleed or a hematoma. We could see evidence of some swelling of the brain. Uh, we could find herniations of the brain, really any number of things. So can you explain what you mean by a herniation of the brain? Yeah, so sometimes when our brain swells or when there's like bleeding in there, that would push it, um, that would sort of squish some of the, the cortex. You can see that um, the brain would move into open areas. And it's, it's in this enclosed skull that's very hard, so there's not very many places for it to go. So sometimes it pushes out. And the areas that it would push would be into uh, the open spaces in our brain, like uh, we call them ventricles. And it might push out of the actual um, like brain stem spinal cord area. Right, which is actually some of the most one of the most fatal consequences of a TBI. So if the brainstem starts to push down into the spinal cord, that's where all your vital functions are, and that can kill a person. Yeah, exactly. That's certainly the most dangerous and, and worst thing that, that could come out of a, a brain swelling up like that. Um, but things we wouldn't be able to see on neuroimaging are the small injuries to neurons and their axons, those that we talked about a little earlier. So using this information about loss of consciousness and evidence of brain injury, how do we classify the severity? Well, this part uh, can get a little boring, but it, it's important to go over. Um, mild TBIs typically involve a brief loss of consciousness and no evidence of a brain injury. So people who experience mild TBIs will typically feel dazed and out of it for a number of days um, or maybe even weeks after the incident. And then there's a laundry list of symptoms that can and often do follow a mild TBI. These can include headache, confusion, dizziness, blurred vision, ringing in the ears, an unpleasant taste in the mouth, fatigue, changes in sleep patterns, mood and behavior changes, and some difficulty with cognitive functions like memory, attention, concentration, and overall thinking. Uh, this group of symptoms is sometimes called post-concussive syndrome, and it occurs in approximately 40% of the people who've had a mild TBI. And the truth is it can last for a number of weeks, uh, but it usually returns to normal. Uh, so why don't I take a minute to discuss moderate and severe TBI, because that comes with sort of that same base of possible symptoms, but then even more than that. Uh, moderate is the descriptor we use when there is a brief loss of consciousness along with evidence of brain injury. And when we say that, we're talking about evidence of brain injury with, the, with neuroimaging. Correct, yeah. And a severe TBI would be one where there's an extended loss of consciousness alongside evidence of a significant brain injury. So, I mean, all of this is sort of vague, right? Uh, we're using the words significant versus insignificant brain injury or, you know, brief loss of consciousness versus extended loss of consciousness. And there's no hard and fast way of distinguishing between those. So there really is like 
judgment um, on behalf of the clinician to, to categorize these. Um, but on top of the symptoms we listed for mild TBIs, people with moderate or severe TBIs may notice that their headaches get worse over time, they may experience seizures, be unable to awaken from sleep, show dilation of one or both pupils, have slurred speech, weakness or numbness in their extremities, loss of coordination, increased confusion, restlessness, or agitation. So it sounds like from what we know about TBIs and what we've heard from Mr. Smith, he probably experienced what we would call a mild traumatic brain injury. He definitely lost some consciousness, but only briefly, and he didn't report any evidence of brain injury when he finally went to the hospital. About one year after his accident, Mr. Smith presented for a neuropsychological evaluation due to continued cognitive symptoms and difficulty performing his duties at work. All right, so now's the time to talk about neuropsych. Uh, why would he go to neuropsych, and what's the purpose of a neuropsych evaluation? Right, so at this point, what Mr. Smith knows is that he doesn't feel quite back to normal, and he's noticed some long-standing changes in his thinking since the accident, and he also knows that these difficulties are clearly interfering with his ability to succeed at his job. And the interesting thing is that, you know, he didn't have any real hard proof of uh, evidence to damage to his brain on imaging techniques like we talked about in the case of a mild TBI, you know, there may be no evidence of brain damage per se, but it doesn't mean that brain damage hasn't occurred. Um, the thing about a neuropsychological evaluation is we use tests to assess um, a person's performance across a number of cognitive domains. So it's not just taking a picture of the brain or testing basic neurological reflexes. It's actually examining in an empirical way, a quantitative way, a person's memory ability, their language ability, their processing speed, um, their executive functioning, these kinds of things, these different domains of um, cognitive functioning that we have to use in our daily lives. Um, and so neuropsychological testing can determine a profile of someone's cognitive strengths and weaknesses, um, and it can help us to infer what, what level of injury has occurred in terms of the severity and also what areas in the brain are damaged if we can't see them on imaging. Um, so this level of detailed information can be helpful in a number of ways. So um, it helps us uh, because we have a general idea of what areas of the brain are important for specific functions, um, the way that he scores on this testing will help us to determine what areas of his brain are probably damaged from the accident um, and what areas are probably spared. And then beyond that, we end up with information that will help us tailor specific recommendations for Mr. Smith based on what we know about his cognitive strengths. So we're able to get really a detailed picture of a, a person's individual level of functioning um, after an accident or any other kind of a neurological condition, really. All right, well, you sold me. Uh, so let's go back to Mr. Smith and see what his appointment with neuropsychology was like. So, Mr. Smith, can you tell me what brings you in today? What sorts of difficulties are you having? Mm, I don't know. It's just I know I'm not quite right. It's the little things, you know, like having trouble remembering people's names or coming up with them when I see them in dates and conversations. I'm just forgetful, I guess. I mean, I don't think it's too bad, but I could be doing better. Sometimes I have difficulty concentrating and can get confused easily. 
like if I'm trying to remember too many things at once, I might forget what I'm doing or get confused. So it sounds like maybe you're having some difficulty with multitasking. Yeah, I guess so. I also lose my train of thought a lot. I don't know. I get overwhelmed easily. I've always struggled with anxiety my whole life. Now I have to worry about how I'm performing at work and stuff. It really worries me. I actually lost my job. I basically got demoted because I couldn't handle all the responsibility anymore. I function kind of slowly. It takes me longer to process and do things, which made it harder to do my job efficiently. Can you give me some concrete examples of where you feel like your functioning is impaired? So, for instance, has your wife noticed anything? Oh, my wife's frustrated with me a lot. She'll tell me to go do something for her, like run an errand, but you forget to do it or won't do it right. I also have a hard time finding things around finding things around the house. I've left the stove on a number of times, which is probably not good. Luckily, Mr. Smith was able to give the neuropsychologist some good detailed information about what he's been struggling with. It sounds like he's noticed a decline in his memory, his attention and concentration, and in more complex organizational and planning skills. Before we go into more detail about how Mr. Smith actually performed on the day of his evaluation, we should briefly discuss the common cognitive, behavioral, and emotional consequences of traumatic brain injuries. All right. Uh, well, again, we need to acknowledge that there's no specific set of cognitive and behavioral difficulties that a person who's had a TBI will experience. As I'm sure you can imagine, the cognitive and behavioral changes follow or accompany the anatomical changes that occur as a result of the trauma. So in other words, the specific cognitive difficulties will depend on where the brain was damaged. Um, so again, it's going to vary from person to person, from injury to injury. Like we discussed before, though, some common areas of injury following a TBI are uh, the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes. And we know that these areas of the brain are recognized as important for a number of cognitive functions. The frontal lobes, for instance, are involved in carrying out executive functions. These include what we consider to be higher level functions like planning, organizing, abstract reasoning, and problem solving. And the frontal lobes are also important for controlling our impulses and regulating our moods and what we consider to be our personality. So if you damage the frontal lobes, as you might from a TBI, you may notice difficulties with executive functions, difficulties with attention and concentration, difficulties retrieving information from your memory, and changes to your mood, like depression, anxiety, apathy, or irritability. Uh, one actually very interesting phenomenon that sometimes accompanies frontal lobe damage is called anosognosia. And uh, the word literally means without knowledge of disease and is meant to describe a condition whereby patients are unaware of their own deficits, regardless of the severity of those impairments. Yeah, that's really interesting. So those are the cognitive impairments that might accompany frontal lobe damage. And it, it seems like we've made a strong case for at least hypothesizing that Mr. Smith probably had some damage to his frontal lobes during the accident. Um, what about the temporal lobes? Because we also heard him describe bruising that he had on the left side of his head. Yeah, well, the temporal lobes are involved in a bunch of things. Um, but one of the main cognitive processes that relies on structures embedded in the temporal lobes is memory. So if you damage the temporal lobes, you might acquire a memory impairment of some nature. 
And that's because the hippocampus, which everyone kind of relates to as sort of the memory structure in the brain, is located also in that interior part of the temporal lobe, so closer to the front of the head and might be more prone to getting, you know, smacked around when you've got that frontal uh, blow to the head. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we've talked about the consequences of focal damage to the brain uh, that Mr. Smith probably acquired during his car accident. Uh, but what about the consequences of the whole brain damage that we talked about earlier, uh, the diffuse axonal shearing? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because this is the, the damage that's a little more elusive, right? This is the ones that we don't pick up on so easily with our neuroimaging. Um, but since this type of damage affects the ability of our neurons to communicate with each other efficiently and effectively, we would expect that damage of this sort would cause problems in what we call processing speed. Um, so there'll be more on that later. But uh, for now, why don't we return to Mr. Smith and see how he actually performed on his neuropsychological evaluation. Surprisingly, Mr. Smith's neuropsychological profile revealed a number of deficits in his cognitive functioning relative to his same age peers. He showed marked impairments in executive functioning, working memory, processing speed, and memory. So executive functions, like Kristen has sort of alluded to, they're the most complex processes that the brain performs and are governed by the most sophisticated areas of our brain, the frontal lobes, which were the last to develop from an evolutionary standpoint. It's kind of what makes us human. Um, we have a number of tests that tap into these complex functions, and in general, Mr. Smith really struggled with anything that required him to sort of strategize or plan ahead, um, and tasks that required him to use feedback either positive or negative, to learn and guide his performance on how to do a task correctly. He was perseverative, which is to say that he continued to put forth the same responses over and over and over again, even when he was receiving negative feedback for doing so. In other words, being told that this was the incorrect response. Um, he also failed to use abstract reasoning to relate members of a group or to determine an organizational principle. Um, while these abilities all sound very abstract and complex, and they are, um, they're really an important part of our daily functioning, um, an important part of our reasoning and our problem-solving ability. We're using them all the time, whether we know it or not. Um, they help us to perform well in interacting with our environment, and both in social circumstances or in the workplace. The second area that I mentioned that Mr. Smith was most impaired in was processing speed, which is also consistent with what Kristen was explaining about TBI and axonal shearing. Processing speed is basically an index of how quickly or efficiently the brain can perform a task, and it's largely governed by the white matter connectivity in the brain. White matter can be thought of as sort of the informational highway system in the brain, and it determines how fast a signal can travel from one area of the brain to another. So, on a test where we gave Mr. Smith a task with a time limit, he didn't necessarily make a lot of errors on the task, but he performed poorly compared to his same age peers because he just didn't finish enough or as many items in the time limit as others might have. So he's not functioning as quickly or efficiently as others who don't have brain damage might. So in everyday tasks, it's likely that he's going to take longer to complete something, which is going to overall decrease his level of efficiency and productivity. Another difficulty that one would suspect has had an impact on his ability to perform his job. Um, so you can just see how these deficits translate into the real world. Lastly, we have memory. 
So Mr. Smith had subtle difficulty learning new information, which is what is referred to as the encoding process, or the ability to take in and store new information. Um, this process is, is highly dependent on the hippocampus, like we mentioned, uh, which is in the anterior temporal lobe. However, Mr. Smith's memory impairments were more strongly characterized by what we call a retrieval deficit, meaning it was difficult for him to get out or retrieve previously learned information from storage. So when it comes to testing memory functioning, we're generally concerned about two things. One, can the information get in there and get stored? Um, can we learn it? And two, can we go back in there and get it out when we need to use it? Uh, individuals with frontal lobe damage tend to have deficits in retrieving previously learned information, even when it's been encoded or learned. So the information gets in there, they just can't get it back out, um, which you can imagine could be pretty impairing um, in the real world when you're on the spot needing to retrieve important information. And lastly, there is working memory, uh, which Mr. Smith also showed an impairment in. And I just want to take a second to explain this and how it might be different from quote-unquote memory as we just described, because the two terms, of course, sound similar. Um, but working memory is what people might refer to as short-term memory um, as opposed to long-term memory. It's information that's been put into the system and is being actively held in the mind or worked on, hence the term working memory. So think about it if someone gives you a phone number and you're about to go dial it and you need to kind of keep it in your mind um, before you go and, and actually dial. That's your working memory. You're holding it in storage, actively using it and rehearsing it. Um, this is actually considered to be more of an executive function linked to the frontal lobes, uh, specifically to an area called the dorsolateral prefront prefrontal cortex. Uh, Mr. Smith had a hard time holding information in his mind and manipulating it in order to produce a response. So for example, think about um, telling me how to spell your first name and your last name, but backwards. This is an example of actively holding information and having to do work on it and then uh, produce a response. Um, and this is, again, uh, something that would, be, would interfere with our ability to perform functions in our daily life um, if, if that function is compromised. Um, and Mr. Smith's difficulty on these tasks is, again, suggestive of significant frontal lobe impairment. Yeah, well, you know, that the results of his neuropsychological evaluation are really striking to me because these are some of the same domains that we expected might be impaired based on the nature of his injury. So really all we needed to, you know, to consider when making our hypotheses were the physics of the injury, the some of the external bruises on his head, and then... Um, we were able to really delve into that and and characterize you know the the nature of his injury in a much more um, thorough way. So that's really interesting, and I think the important question we have to ask now is what can we do for Mr. Smith now that we have this knowledge, and what kinds of things can we recommend for him? So for Mr. Smith, we recommended um, an intensive rehabilitation program um, at an outpatient hospital. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to say how effective something like this can be depending on how long it's been post-injury, um, but it was definitely worth a shot, and so we referred him out to um, a, a center for care. Um, in addition to that, we recommended cognitive behavioral therapy to help Mr. Smith both with um, compensatory strategies for um, 
to kind of overcome his uh, executive impairment difficulties and also just to help with the adjustment of having a chronic and debilitating condition. Um, you know, he had some anxiety about his uh, level of disability and having a supportive therapist to work through some of those um, life changes and um, adjustment period can be really helpful. Um, other than that, you know, it, it's clear those were the, the main recommendations that were made, um, and, and it's clear that these recommendations are a little bit limited. Uh, hopefully, you know, we're giving Mr. Smith some tools to help him live with what's what he's got at this point, uh, but we may not be able to improve his ability to think or restore his lost cognitive functions per se. True. Uh, our goal for Mr. Smith is that he improves his day-to-day -day functioning by working to his strengths. But at the same time, we'll provide him with education about how to keep the rest of his brain healthy and how to take all the necessary precautions to avoid another brain injury of this kind. Um, where it stands now, that's about as much as we can offer to someone like Mr. Smith, who has already suffered a TBI and continues to experience cognitive impairments a year after the incident. But the good news is that most people who experience mild TBIs can expect to make a full recovery. And thinking back to what we've heard throughout this podcast, we can appreciate that Mr. Smith is not alone in his struggles. Unfortunately, traumatic brain injuries are all too common, and because there's not a lot that we can do post-injury, our focus needs to turn to prevention. So there are a number of ways to reduce the likelihood of sustaining a TBI. First and foremost, it's important to be smart when operating and riding in a motor vehicle. This means always wearing your seatbelt and never driving under the influence of alcohol. When riding bicycles or motorcycles, or when playing contact sports, it's imperative to wear a properly fitted helmet. Finally, it's important to make sure our home environments are safe for both children and elderly to prevent trips and falls. As we've mentioned, these are some of the most at-risk uh, groups of people for sustaining a TBI. So, we've talked about so much today, and uh, hopefully given at least the framework for how to think about traumatic brain injuries. But really, we've just scraped the surface. There's so much more that we could delve into and so many other scenarios that we could discuss. I mean, Mr. Smith is just one example of how someone could end up with a TBI. But consider something like a blast injury that many of our military servicemen and women are incurring. Uh, we haven't even touched on TBIs in the military, and, you know, that's a whole other podcast altogether. But this concludes the duration of this podcast. Um, if anyone out there listening believes that you or a loved one have sustained a TBI um, and are experiencing cognitive or emotional symptoms as a result, we would hope that you would consider contacting a neuropsychologist in your area uh, to seek some uh, advice and some help. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Kristen Moffitt. And I'm Jenna Dietz. Thanks for listening.